You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. Today we have two guests, photographer Stephen Wilkes and his wife and business manager Betty Wilkes. Uh, Stephen is a photographer whose work I have long admired both aesthetically and technically. His photographs are included in the collections of the George Eastman Museum, the James A. Mishner Art Museum, the Houston Museum of Arts, the Dow Jones Collection, the Griffin Museum of Photography, the Jewish Museum of New York, the Library of Congress, the Museum of the City of New York, the 9-11 Memorial Museum, and numerous private collections. His editorial work has appeared in and on the covers of New York Times Magazine, Vanity Fair, Time, Fortune, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, etc. His fine artwork is also represented in New York City by the Bryce Walkowitz Gallery. Welcome. Nice to have you guys here. Thank it's you. Great to be here. Today's topic is the a series of photographs that you guys have been working on called uh, Day to Night. And it is ambitious to say the least. Um, just a fast intro. They're not time lapse. They're not time exposures. But they are a record of an entire day's activity in one location. Correct. Summarized in one photograph. And it is still a photograph, even though it's a collage, montage, however you want to describe it. But it's one photograph that takes in day to night, and it's amazing. Betty, you are the, um, the mechanism that makes all of this happen in this relationship. What are the seeds of this particular project? Where did it start, and where did, what was the first photograph that you did in this series? Well, the first photograph was uh, the High Line, and Stephen was asked to shoot that by um, the photo editor at New York Magazine, Jody Kwan. Mm-hmm. And um, she came to him, and, and we sit in our offices with our back to each other. And I hear him <laughs> talking to her on the phone saying, God, Jody, I love the High Line during the day, but I also love it at night. What about if I did a, a picture for you where I, where I shot north to south and combined day to night in one photograph? And I'm listening to him, and he's going, I don't know. I don't know. And, 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 and he, he says, but I'm going to figure it out. He hangs up, and I turn around, and I say, how are you going to do that? Because I don't know, but I am going to figure it out. But and were, he did. were you immediately thinking production as soon as he asked that? Or I was that? immediately thinking, oh my God, what, 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 what are we going to do here? How, how am I going to get him permission now, to be where is, he is wants to be? Is it fair to say you already had this stuff bubbling in your head for a while? Because you don't just volunteer to do something like that unless you got something cooking back there. I, I think there's a, it's funny. First of all, I could never even come up with that idea if I didn't have my wife, Betty, who's just such an amazing partner in terms of she takes care of so many of the aspects of the business that allow me to sort of float like that creatively, you know, and, uh, and that's a, gift, a huge you know, thing. You it have a, a gift great there. gift, no question about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get to float. And sometimes when I float, um, things like this happen where I get this intersection. Um, and for me, it was it was a, a thing that happened when I was um, years ago, 19, it was, I guess, 16 years ago when I did a photograph for Life magazine of Baz Luhrmann's film, uh, Romeo and Juliet. And it was there where the idea or the concept of, of actually 
creating time change in an image sort of um, jumped out at me. I was asked to do a panoramic photograph of the set of, uh, of the film with all the cast and crew. And it was essentially I was paying homage to the old uh, big pictures that Life magazine used to do. Mm -hmm. And when I got to uh, Mexico to do this photograph, and I'm all set to do a big wide picture, the set is a square. And I'm like, how am I going to make a th you know, three-page gatefold out of a square? And at the time, David Hockney was doing this really exciting uh, the photo collage technique where he yeah, was yeah, yeah. You know, um, shooting multiple images and then pasting them together. And I was inspired by that. And I thought, wait a second, I could kind of do that kind of an idea. I could Instead of taking one picture, I'll take like 250 images of the entire set. And I essentially took the square and I opened it into a panoramic shape. And in the process of making that photograph, I had Claire Danes and Leonardo in the, in the center of the photograph. And I had them embracing as Romeo and Juliet. And you see everybody, the cast and crews behind him. And then as I panned my camera and started taking multiple images, there was a huge mirror, uh, literally, on the, on the set. And in that mirror, you could see a perfect reflection of Claire and Leonardo and the cast and crew as well. And I asked just for that one photograph. I said, could everybody stay exactly as you are except Claire and Leonardo? I want you guys to kiss for this one photograph. And then I came back to New York and I... <laughs> put this thing together over like seven days. It was a, I have such respect for Hockney. I never want to do that again. <laughs> but um, I actually looked at the finished composite images, this collage I'd created, and I changed time. I had them embracing in the center and in the reflection they were kissing. And that idea of actually changing time in a photograph is where that actually was seated. And I just, you know, again, never wanted to do a giant collage like that again, but suddenly this advent of Photoshop and the idea of technology um, allows me really now to sort of take that idea and that concept, that dream in a way, and bring it to and reality that, in a seamless way. That image you shot uh, on film or in? That was all shot film. That was all shot yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Color it was print like five, film. seven inch yeah, prints just yeah. all laid out I was out shooting, uh, you know, it was a six by seven format and I just literally, you know, literally shot you know, hundreds of images. And then I got giant, <laughs> giant contact sheets made and I hand cut them myself. And, ah, you know, I actually okay. have the test that I did. I did it with the, initially with a Polaroid to see if it could even work conceptually and then, and did that. But it was one of those things that's to me, what's interesting is um, how ideas sort of evolve. And, you know, even though that was uh, so many years ago when I did that, um, suddenly I, I, I got this assignment and I, I started to look at the high line and realized I you know, it was really my frustration in the fact that I loved it both times a day and couldn't decide which one I liked better. <laughs> and so by, by, by sheer the force of like nature, I just figured, well, wait a second, why can't I do both? And that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. Okay, so you, you say, okay, I'm doing it. You hang up the phone and you're sitting there back to back and you say, okay, now what am I doing? So what'd you do? Well, you know, <laughs> this first one, the Highline, was um, less production heavy than many of the others only because we were so naive about what we were doing. Steven went out, he scouted it. And funny enough, one You wouldn't have taken the assignment if you knew it was involved. Naivety <laughs> is sometimes a blessing. Um, <laughs> yes. But the, the crazy thing is, and I don't know if you remember this anecdote, um, but uh, the crazy thing is one of the guys that owned one of the buildings that he wanted to shoot from ended up to be one of his collectors. At the time, that didn't exist, but further right. on down the road, which is which When I funny. wanted to shoot from his rooftop, it was like, no, nah, <laughs> yeah, I don't no. really want to. <laughs> and then he ends up becoming a collector of my work, which is really so, funny. Yeah. It's okay. Let them refuse every yeah, time. Right. Like, hey, that's okay. Yeah. But yeah. So for that one, we, we have a longstanding relationship with um, one of the uh, equipment companies up in uh, Mount Vernon who knows Stephen loves to shoot from, you know, a great big lift. 
And I called him and I said, what do you got? What's going to fit? You know, and they're like, okay. But I said, but Sam, we need it for, you know, about 24 hours. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah. So this particular lift truck wasn't, you know, your favorite truck. Yeah, it wasn't my 170-foot Condor. That's my preferred choice. So we didn't have such a hard time clearing it. You said you didn't want to talk gear. Now you're talking gear. You know, it's just... Oops. I re- actually really want one of those. I want to put it like a toilet in one, I like a, you know, a cappuccino machine. Kind of I, I was there for 36 I, I hours. 36 hours would I be like nice. this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so from my perspective, this one wasn't as challenging because I was able to get the permission. The streets, at that time, the Highline was still under construction. There wasn't that, a, a big problem getting the my permit. The tourists didn't discover it yet. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that big a deal. But when we moved on to um, the Flatiron, that became a huge a huge uh, production. And that happened because um, some months before we were on assignment in Times Square photographing the Jumbotron there. Is it a Jumbotron? Am I saying it right? The, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was for a particular client and we had the 170 foot condor out there and he's up, you know, 70 feet in the air shooting, everything's going great. And all of a sudden this big black car shows up and it's the executive director of the mayor's film and broadcasting office. And he says to me, what are you doing? And it was freezing out. So I was sitting in the car <laughs> and I said, I have my permit. He goes, he said, if I could pull you out by your hair right now, I would. It's a vaulted sidewalk. He's going to fall right through. And I was like, really? And he's like, yes. And I said, well, we've been here before. We've done this before. He's like, let me see. So he goes around and he looks around and, we, and, he, and it ended up that we really hit it off. We got the shot. We became friends through the whole thing. He said, Is he also a collector now? Sort of. <laughs> His wife has one of one of our pieces. This the flat iron pieces, actually, and um, and we he he saw that you know we were really serious about what we were doing, and I was able to work it all out with him. And so I went back to him and I said, "Look, we we want to do the flat iron," and he said, "You know what? We're not doing this without the DOT." He said, "Meet me down d- downtown. It'll be me and the DOT, and we got to walk through this, and we got to walk it off and see if it's really feasible." From the the. F- the Highline shot, which was uh, an assignment from a magazine, right? Did they continue in that fashion as assignments? Uh, and then, wh- what's the time frame we're talking about from from the Highline to Times Square and then to Flatiron? And when did you know it was going to be more than just one shot? And well, what happened was they they uh, they came to us. Uh, at New York Magazine again came to me uh, and Jody and said. Uh, and this is kind of a funny story too. Our son had got accepted to NYU, and so we were going for a you know one of those uh, uh, briefings, and uh, we were up at top of the Kimmel Center, mm-hmm. and you know when I get sort of visually enchanted by something, it's as if the entire world turns off. So I have no focus other than what I'm looking. It was at. the parent orientation. Yes, yeah, the parent orientation. So, Betty is like I'm and, looking. And Betty's the parent, right? Betty's the parent, yeah. and I'm, I'm looking out the window. And, and they, going, they separate you. So oh the my kids God. go in one room, and the parents go in the other. And he's with the kids. I'm looking and at this like, view of Washington Square Park, and I've never seen this view before. And I'm like, this is so yeah, incredible. It is great, I've been up there. And yeah, and and Betty's like, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you listening? <laughs> and so we walk out of literally this meeting, and uh, my phone rings, and it's Jody, and she says, we want you to do another one of those day-to-night things. How about vertical? Could you do a vertical one? And I'm like going, boy, do I have the location? (laughs) And it was, that's how Washington Square literally happened. I walked out of the building, I got a phone call, and that's uh, how the second one evolved. And I think then the second one we showed uh, actually at the APAD photography show. And uh, I never, I think we both of us never saw a reaction to um, any of my photographs like that picture 
sort of drove. And it was at that moment that I kind of realized I'd, you know, really kind of stepped into something. Uh, and and we began to really talk about um, creating a body of work on New York on with this concept and this idea. And that's kind so, of so without, without going off too so really, far on yeah. the side, I, I have to say that there are many, many amazing photographs in this world, especially these days when everyone's taking pictures. But what's unique about this series of pictures is that you have to stop and look at them because it's more than just a pretty picture or an amazing image. It's something that as you're looking at, it, you realize that there's no way you can see this in any other form except in, in this a, photograph. Exactly. But you know what? It's a really new way. You know, for me, it's what's exciting about it is, and I think one of the things that happened to me personally, one of the drivers to create this this idea was, uh, you know, at 2000, uh, in the year 2000, everybody was talking about like film was going to become the dominant visual uh idea that we'd all look at you know that was going to be the form that still photography was somehow going to be you know go the way of the, the gutenberg bible or something you know right, it was right. just like it was going to be commoditized photography's was, yeah right. photography's kind of dead and that was the and people were actually saying it that video is it everything's video we see in video we dream in video it's all video and i took such offense to that because i felt like wait a second this is we have this digital technology now it's a whole new way of thinking and i started to start to to, to realize that I wanted to sort of create something photographically that show in a way that this is just the beginning of where still photography can go, that there's a whole new, you know, with these two new tools, um, we we're not limited to a single image anymore, a single moment. Why does it have to be that way? Photography's always been an evolution, and, and that's kind of the way I've always thought about it. And now, that said, these photographs, each mm -hmm. individual photograph contains up to 2,000 elements from or elements from 2,000 photographs. Is that correct or no? Well, no. We, I will shoot anywhere from 1,200 to 2,200 images okay. to do one day to night. And it's, what, what's important to note is you said it's not a time lapse. This is me hand-cocking a traditional large format lens and taking 2,200 single photographs, yes. moments that I see with my eye, right? So I, I'm... It's all done in the most traditional of manners. What's different is I'm capturing the image in a very high resolution digital back. And then it's what I do, what we do on the back end and the way, the combination of the way I photograph and the way we put the image together in post allows me to really, and you, the viewer, to experience what was essentially um, my memory of that day. And he edits the, the 2,200 or the 1,500 Into 50 selects. Oh. Yeah, you know, on average, about on 50. Average. Yeah. Now, you, you also mentioned that you start off uh, um, one of the images you have to have, one of your base images, I believe you described. There's no people in it. It has to be empty. Yeah, what we try How to do, do is- do that? It's called a- Sometimes. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it's, it's called a, uh, we call it, I describe it as what I call a naked plate based on yes, time. Okay. So what I do is I, I uh, as I photograph, for every moment you see in my photographs, I have moments where I- consciously don't have any people in that area. So I'm trying to, in my mind, I'm creating a naked plate. So people say to me, how do you even pay attention for 36 hours, let alone, like you can't watch TV. Most people can't watch TV for more than five hours, you know? So, but I'm hyper-focused in this thing and it's because it's literally a, a real-time puzzle that's going on in my mind as I, as I photograph. So I'm, I'm, I'm not only seeing what's in front of me based as time changes, my eye moves as time changes, but I'm also thinking about do I have 
that naked plate? Do I have a piece where no people are in that part of the area? Do I have the sky? Do Can I transition? Where are the transitions happening? Do I have, you know, when I'm shooting crowd shots, I'm actually waiting, you know, people, it's, I'm not only just getting the moment, I get the moment when the actual crowd breaks, you know? And so the, it's literally like that type of thing. I'm almost like a surgeon, um, hyper-focused on all of the elements that I need. Because I know in the end, if I don't have those elements, we can't really execute this. How are you post. keeping track of all? Because there's, there's, these are, are, are amazingly complex pictures that take in a wide field of view, wide, wide mm. angle of view. And as you're, just, you're up there for a day, literally, sometimes and you're watching, more. or something's more. more. How do you keep track of all of these, do you know that you have like this lower quadrant clear of people or I mean are you taking notes or is it just all in your head it's all in my head I don't talk to anybody except my assistant and I keep my assistant and he marks them on and he marks them you know we have a very elaborate uh, it's a combination of a color system and uh, you know a number system that allows me based on time uh, to know exactly where I am at any given moment and the beautiful thing about what I do is you know I shoot for 18 hours but the entire when I edit it's all based on time right so I kind of know where I am um, depending oh, yeah. on where I start my edit. You know, you could literally, you know, with my work, you can sort of sit and just kind of just, you know, cruise through, you know, keep the, the space bar down and just fly through all the images and you can actually see time change in my foot, right? So that's what I'm doing. But my eye is moving as time moves. So I, the, the critical element in this whole thing is I have to um, really decide where day begins and night ends. And that's what I call a time vector. And in my photographs, if you look closely, my vector can go on an x-axis, a y-axis, or even a z-axis. And so um, essentially, I'm, I'm really taking the concept of the space-time continuum, what I, Einstein described, right, as a fabric, uh, what time is, you know, and, and how this fabric gets warped by gravity. I take the fabric of time. That's what I see time as a grid as well and a fabric, except I flatten it onto a two-dimensional single piece, you know, of film. And these ideas that you're, you're discussing and even, even the process, at what stage did these ideas come to you? Was this there as a seed from the beginning or are these ideas that you developed over these 10, well, the, 15 the, years? The, the, the exploration of like the, the space-time continuum actually happened. I had done a, a few of these and uh, I, I was reading the book on Einstein, and when the word fabric was brought up in in the book, I I suddenly had this light went on in my head because I see time as a grid like that, like a fabric, wrinkle in and time, a wrinkle in time. Yeah. So I was almost um, in a strange way, intuitively, just seeing it that way. I was seeing time that way in my photographs, and then I, as I as started to evolve the work and explore this idea of a time vector, I started to realize that if I could move time um, not only on one axis, but on two axis, and in fact, three axis points, suddenly I could change your perception of, uh, of depth in a photograph. And what I describe as, a, what's most interesting, I think, is the color of light in my photographs. When you look at the color in my pictures, you know, people come into, my, into galleries in my shows and they look at the images and they go, wow, what's he doing with the color? I'm not doing anything with the color. You're seeing the color of light change over a 12-hour period in a single photograph. And so our brains are wired where if, you know, we're in this room now and we turn on a red light and there's no other light on, after about five or 10 minutes, you know, Alan, you're going to look neutral to me. Auto you're not going to look red. We have auto I'm, white balance. Yeah, right. Auto, exactly. We <laughs> want really to see what it is. That's what it is. We neutralize it. We neutralize everything. You can't go neutral in my photographs. So in a way, 
color for me in my photographs, the color of light becomes almost like a musical score in a film. It adds a, a, a I've discovered that there's a real powerful narrative in the ability to change the color of light over time. And there's so many questions. Can you I, tell I, me? I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to jump back just to mention one thing, and, and you talked about music, but and, and you talked about viewing the photos. I have viewed these photos like I view a painting at times, like a like a, yes. like a large mm -hmm. uh, landscape, but even more so some of the old masters where you're taking a, a quadrant and looking at it and then checking out another aspect and then trying to put them all together. I look at it differently than I do most photos. Well, well, that's you know that's quite interesting because thank you. I, I, um, you know, I see that's one of the most exciting aspects of where we can go now as photographers, um, is that we, you know, there's always was a great envy uh, what a painter could do, right? Because a painter could interpret, could could bring, and photography was this very accurate representation. What you can't fix reality. You can't easy. fix reality. But now <laughs> what I'm able to do, and if you look at, uh, I'm a student of uh, painting. And, uh, and art history. And uh, as I started to evolve my work, and it, my, one of my first inspirations was uh, uh, Jan Bruegel, the elder. And he really established for me, if you look at my day to night work, you can see the scale uh, of Bruegel in my, in my mm -hmm, photographs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there's an, uh, this concept of being able to actually see uh, and, he and feel the stories. Uh, the, one of the paintings that struck me when I was 14, I went to the museum of the Metropolitan uh, for the first time. And uh, <laughs> I remember seeing the harvesters for the first time, and it just changed my changed my life. I, I never saw a landscape like that. And I remember walking up to the painting and actually just looking at all the stories that were going on within this painting, and it was so uh, nuanced. And yet, even though I was capturing this entire breadth of the scene, I could still feel almost the sweat coming off the brow of these individual guys working in this field. I, I There was a powerful narrative that was happening within the context of this epic landscape. And so um, that was something that inspired me. Another one was the, the great Hudson uh, River school painter, uh, Albert Bierstadt. And Bierstadt, you know, his paintings, if you look closely at Hudson River School, guys, they were <laughs> they're recording light moving in a scene. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. If you look closely, the sun is not in one position in uh -huh, those paintings. Uh -huh. And there's a dimensionality in those paintings, and it's because light is moving. And so, you know, what I've essentially done is I'm exploring this idea of, you know, uh, the way painters work, but I'm doing it in a very strict uh, sort of uh, regimen of based on time and capturing the changing of light. And we're working it on what I call a time vector. But that is enabling me to create a, a certain depth and a, a perception in a still photograph that we never could see before. Some, something that uh, uh, came to mind when preparing for this uh, show was um, some years ago, Andy Warhol did a movie of the Empire State Building where he set up a camera Empire, on the street, yeah. Empire, and he just hours, photographed yeah. the building for 24 hours. Right. Now, it's the most boring movie in existence, and most people would say it's a picture of nothing, but in fact, he was doing exactly what you were doing in a, in a certain sense of a static object, and it's not that there's nothing happening. Everything is happening. Light and texture are changing, clouds, everything's changing. You just don't see it, but in your photographs, it's the same concept squeezed into one frame. Right. I think, you know, many people have explored time, I mean, throughout yeah. history, and, and, and there's so many, dating back to the Renaissance, I've discovered, you know, painters that were creating panels that they were changing time within the context of an actual painting. Um, and so, 
you know, this is a, a, a fascination, I think, with artists throughout history. And so I, I'm just, uh, you know, evolving it photographically, really. But I think that there's... Um, People have described my work. It's like looking at a movie in a still photograph. In yeah, a way. Um, yeah, you know that that's kind of a very interesting way to look at it as well. It's but, but one thing to touch on that you sure. just said is that one of the beauties of this work is that many of our collectors will tell us they love walking by the picture every day because they see something different every time they walk mm -hmm. by it, and they love living with the work because it's always capturing their imagination and their interest. And I think that's, you know, really a beautiful thing about the work because the longer you stare at it, the more you see. I mean, it is, what I'm doing is, is, is um, I just don't know how many people have ever studied a place as long as I do mm. in a single day, mm -hmm. you know? So there's something about, uh, although I'm not like shooting a year on one particular subject, I'm doing this intense study in one day and, you know, my camera's in a fixed position. And so I basically... I'm at the mercy of whatever nature brings, right? Whether, you know, I have no idea who's going to show up. I have no idea what the weather's going to be like. I mean, we try to do our homework, but in the end, uh, I like to say I, I feel, uh, I like to have a certain level of unease when I work. It's like um, doing this show, <laughs> actually. That's yeah. the way we approach it. No, I'm sure. Chris exact phrase, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, unease it's... comes up a lot on the show. <laughs> I, uh, to me, fair, uh, and I hope the answer to this is yes, just to satisfy my own needs as a, as a creative. Please tell me you had dud days when it just did not work out. Yeah, I have. I mean, Thank you. but Thank you. I, I will say that I, my percentage is pretty doggone high. I'm pretty lucky. When you're there in the spot taking the photo, are you, I don't want to say pre-visualizing, but are you thinking the narrative through in, in for example, the people on the ground and what is this going? And, and then later in post, do you adjust the individuals on the ground or the animals in the case of, uh, of nature photos too? No, I, tr I really, really try to be very strict yeah. to where things happen based on time. That's really important to me. So that, that because, you know, when we're compositing these images um, and, and I work with a, a brilliant retoucher who I've been, you know, I torture basically, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the idea really is, is critical that we, um, uh, you know, in order to have an effect visually where you look at the work and it's seamless like that, um, if you're, you know, moving and change, you know what I mean? Putting guys right and left in it, 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 it never looks right. It just doesn't, you know, you, you, when you're in a space lightwise and grounded in reality, it has a certain look. The to one it. that I yeah. keep thinking back is, the, uh, I guess it's tunnel view and there's a, a skateboarder mm -hmm. that's down in the left corner jumping. He's kind of caught in the middle of the jump. Yeah. I, I, that, well, that happened, yeah, those right? are all, I mean, yeah, the, the that people one look, also, the, the guy throwing the baby, the up, baby in up in the air. Oh, yeah. People I mean, always comment on that. Yeah, and I, yeah, when yeah. I remember when I first saw the take, I was like, My oh, breath man. was taken away when I was watching him throw the baby up in the air. I couldn't believe how high he was throwing oh, wow. that kid up in the air. Um, but <laughs> well, those how are high were you? He was trying yeah. to, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, he had a drone yeah, exactly. on the I'm head. about 40 feet up. I'm, I'm literally doing that picture from the top of the, um, the actual tunnel. And I'm on a 45 degree, I can't even tell you how unbelievably challenging and difficult that photograph was to do. We now, by the way, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. You, here you were on a fixed position. You're on uh, mm -hmm. terra firma, okay? A lot of these pictures were shot up in cherry pickers and cranes. Right. You have to maintain a certain amount of stability, uh, not that you're dealing with pen re, pen, uh, pin registration here because you do have a certain amount of liberties in, in post. But, but he's pretty really. much straight. Not really. It's got to be really. pin registered pretty okay, much. Okay, so yeah. that said, you're yeah. up there in a bucket with somebody else for over a day, a ton, hours, oh, yeah. okay? How do you maintain that stability? Because every time you're moving, you're repositioning 
Well, that's that, why so, he loves that condor so yeah, much. Yeah, I, I, I always go with these gigantic machines, not because I need to go 170 feet in the air, but because I look for the ballast. The weight of the machine gives me the stability that I need. So if I get anything more than a 10-mile-an-hour gust, I'm out of business. So in other words, if Fulber so, made, made up crane, this is the crane. This is the made. crane, right, right. <laughs> okay. But I would, I mean, I, I, the, the bigger the the bigger the beast, the more I the, like it. The, this particular crane stability. has outriggers on yeah. it, which gives it a tremendous amount yeah. of stability. Oh, okay. But there, there are times where we can't get that machine in. We just can't. And like on the inauguration, as an example. Yeah, we, well, the inauguration, I mean, you, you hit on something. I, I was, uh, you know, we got special permission from the president himself at the time of Obama's inauguration, 2013. And uh, we... Uh, where I was able to get a, a scissor lift in there. That's the only thing they'd let me use. Because it and had to be pre-cleared. It had to be pre-cleared. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so they they got me this lift, and I begged the guy, I said, give me the best machine you have, like the most stable. I don't want something rickety. And we got there, and sure enough, it was, a, it was as good a 50-foot scissor lift as you get, but scissor lifts are very unstable. So what happens is every time you shift your weight – Literally, if I, I go from my left leg to my right leg, my horizon line would shift. Sure. So my assistant and I had to actually tape ourselves into position. And every exposure I made, I was literally in the exact same spot every time because that was the only way I could guarantee that my horizon line wasn't going to so change. So you put tape wow. footprints down mm -hmm. you stood mm -hmm. on. And Marks. I stood and I mimicked oh, my exact... Yeah, yeah, and my, my, even the weight of my arm, the way I was over the camera... The position, physically, my physical position was exactly in the same every exposure it I made. It must take you a day that's to 10 get hours over that. That's, a, that's like a physical that. effort. Oh, my God. It's I mean, so it exhausting. Must, yeah, people don't realize how physical yeah. it is. I mean, yeah, or yeah. I've been in a, you know, recently just did this geographic project on bird migration mm -hmm. day to night and 36 hours in a bird blind yeah. where you can't even turn on a white light. You know, white light, they go. Mm. You sneeze, they leave. They I mean, well, it's that kind of thing. Can we Speaking about sneezing, you're up in a bucket for 20, 30 hours. <laughs> yeah. Let's not even go yeah. there. All right, okay. Let's just say, you know that guy? Asks. Yeah, that guy who eats all those hot dogs, he has a routine. I've got my Okay, <laughs> all right, okay. Moving right along. I, can we uh, jump back over here to that the flat iron image and, and kind of start with some production talk here? Because sure. uh, I know, I mean... Yeah, There's so the much to talk about here. <laughs> to Venice, to the Flatiron in 2013. It's all, you know, really months of preparation, of honestly. Course, yeah, yeah. And the Flatiron is is one of my favorites because I did work with um, the gentleman from the mayor's office very closely on this. And as I mentioned earlier, he said, you know, look, the only way I'm going to ever approve this is if we meet with the DOT. So, okay. Now, Stephen and I have been working together for many years in, in the world of advertising, and I've done a lot of production with him before. So I, I knew what the DOT was. I, I, you know, I knew the drill. And um, I've never really, you can just submit a permit to the DOT. I've never had to go down and meet them before. So I went down, it was a, and, uh, in, in the midsummer, and I met with both um, the gentleman from the mayor's office and from the DOT. And we walked through it all, and I explained everything. I also had to have permission from two other sources. One was the pork chop, which is the bit of land right in front where all the blue umbrellas mm -hmm. are, and then another set of permissions from the Flatiron building itself. And um, it was a little bit different than I, I might have to get today. But anyway, that being said, um, I got permission, and um, they said to me, here's the day you can shoot at 9-11. And I thought, oh, there's going to be nobody on the street because it was the 10th anniversary and I thought everybody's going to be downtown, but I was too petrified, honestly, to say, do you think you could give right. me another date? Because yeah. I knew oh, I was the 12th. pressing the But then she the told me and I said, Stephen, they're going to let us do it on 9-11. And I go, oh my God, you're kidding me. That that means we're going to get the memorial lights. The tribute of lights. On Fifth Avenue. Yeah. I said, I'm going to, then I knew instantly, I said, I'm going to do Fifth Avenue at night 
and and Broadway day. day. And yeah. that and that's how it happened. Yeah, literally. So, so like they gave get. us the permission and we had everything in place and I had my parking monitor out the night before and putting up signs and we were all prepared. We can it was a gorgeous day. How big's the crew on a shot like this? It's small. We oh. we can't so what's interesting is we always have a, a PA with us on the ground and we always have one assistant up in the air with Steven and myself or another production person on the ground, you know, when he travels to India, for example, I usually don't go on those. Um, Africa, I had production people there. I was there ahead of time with him scouting a bit, but um, so it, it varies, you know, anywhere from four to five is the max because it's just too long a day and we can't shift people out in the middle because we really need the continuity. So on this, we had one of our assistants up with Steven and on this particular one, the uh, the driver of the truck this is said, a funny story. I, I, I have to go up there with him. I, that's the way we, we keep one guy on the ground watching the lift, and I got to go up with him. And I was like, look, you know, you guys, you know us for 100 years. I don't think it's a good idea. You're not going to be able to come down. And he just they wasn't. They didn't grasp that. Yeah, idea. he yeah. wasn't yeah. getting it. And <laughs> I was didn't like, get, all right. The driver didn't, like, really understand. What, like, <laughs> so, I mean, come on. You're, you're going to come down, right? <laughs> yes. We're and sitting And I kept saying, there. no. no lunch so I'm up there, and I'm, like, getting, I mean, it's a perfect and day. All this amazing stuff. Uh, yeah, and we have a, a pulley system. So For I would go out and get drinks food. and sandwiches, whatever he needs. A bucket, basically. Put it in the bucket, <laughs> and the bucket goes up. And I, I remember pulling the bucket up, and the guy goes, all right, I'm coming down. And I'm like, I don't no. think so. No, he said to me, he looked at me, uh, what happens is- <laughs> If um, you can't fit in the bucket, you ain't no, going anywhere. So we're, we're, we've got all this great stuff. I'm, I'm all set. I'm waiting for the sunset now. I'm literally just waiting for the memorial lights to come on. And he looks at me, and he goes- Okay, guys, uh, I got to go to the bathroom, so we're going to just go down for a few minutes, okay? And I go, no, 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 you don't understand. He goes, what do you mean? I got to go to the bathroom. I said, no, no, no. I said, you see that? We have to get this picture of the lights. I said, after I get the lights on, you're free to go down. But Which we is about do five hours later. I said, I can offer you a bottle. I can offer you. I said, like, yeah, September 11th is like, like, the like, I was like 9.30. I was, sure. I was at that moment almost ready to grab the keys and say, we're not moving this thing because I knew I had such a <laughs> great down. Ground. I and, just and said, the driver, there's no way we're going down. His partner who's sitting down on the ground looks at me and he goes, you're kidding, right? I said, no, I told you. You just weren't listening. No one comes down. Once he goes up, he's up. So after this shoot... Every other shoot we've ever done with them, they're like, no problem, Stephen, you can go up go by yourself. Up here, they're like, yeah, we'll control it from the ground. And they <laughs> sit and they have their coffee in the car and they're, it's just Sleep me and myself. Are you guys in constant communication? I mean, yes, we're yeah, on walkies yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was really funny. It was really funny. Yeah. But, but on this one also, there's just a, a lot of nuances because, first of all, the pork chop itself, the umbrellas are down you know, at night and, mm. um, the, the, everyone was super nice and super helpful on this, but I ended up getting out there at, you know, I think it was three in the morning and I had to run out and literally put up each one of those <laughs> umbrellas myself, oh, wow. which is okay. You know, uh, and then, you know, we had, we had that little thing. And then we also had, um, that particular day, Stephen was up and all of a sudden there was a bomb scare, bomb scare yeah. in, um, the so, Ma yeah. in Madison park. So what happened was I'm 50 feet in the air. And all of a sudden, it's like Godzilla is entering Madison Park. Mm -hmm. It's like people are fleeing. Wow. And they're, and you hear this announcement, please evacuate the park. Please evacuate the park. And all of a sudden, like this guy, like the Hurt Locker, Mr. Hurt Locker comes. Uh -huh. And I'm petrified. In his full-on bomb suit. Because I'm worried they're going to say, you, get yeah. down. He's yeah. 25 feet away from me. And my assistant and I are watching this. And, they're, and they're, no one, you know, one thing, amazing thing about 
being in a cherry picker over New York City. Nobody looks up, mm-hmm. like especially with today's <laughs> technology, right? With everyone's iPhone and everything, and probably you know, nobody now looks, with drones and stuff, it would probably be very different. But it, but you know, no, nobody I mean, looks up. They, you're, they you're just right. don't. So the, right. I was invisible, even to the police in a way. So Except they're clearing. They're clearing the streets, and I'm looking at my assistant and going, and I get this Mr. Hurt Locker, and he's, you see him bringing a suitcase. It, you know, he's going into the park, and he takes this suitcase back in, and he's just outside my frame. Otherwise, it would have been in the <laughs> picture. And, but I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, I think we're in the blast zone here. This is nuts. <laughs> I have no idea that I'm even here. And me, that driver's going, can I go down now? Can I go yeah, down yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we were yeah, all yeah. extremely nervous. Yeah, he was like, wait a second. This wasn't part of the agreement. <laughs> wow. So... Follow up on that. They, they, so, they, the bomb, they cleared the, they cleared they cleared the, the bomb. bomb. Was, yeah. And, you know, because it was 9-11, it was even more so. Yeah, oh, sure. Uh, you know, yeah. even more. It was pretty crazy. Worrisome to everybody. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, please just don't look up. Because I figured as soon as they see him, they're going to be like, down. Oh, yeah. They didn't look up. They cleared out the park. They went through all the machinations. And then they went went about their Another business. Everybody left. City. And yeah. headed downtown. And, you know, we were sitting there. It was also just happened that Italy had just opened. So there was a line around the corner for gelato. There were a tremendous amount of people on the streets. You know, it just ended up to be a magical, magical day. The weather was fantastic. And it, really, the rest of it, I have to say, went off without a hitch. We, we were so fortunate. And in each one of them, there are always something, something happening, last-minute changes. You know, it is production-heavy. Each one of these does take months. I, I can't tell you. I, we, Gramercy Park was one of the ones we did it. After that, and I had to go through a tremendous amount of permission gaining through the Gramercy Park Association, which we became friendly with. And each one of them brings its own nuances and its mm-hmm. own problem solving. I, I think the beauty of it all is that because he's up there for so long, people who work with us really respect. respect it. I was going to say, what's the one thing that, yeah. that links everybody's eventual okay you know what i mean their approval is it respect for the work uh I, I are they expecting a print at the end or sometimes or, yeah. we we do do that with gramercy park we did do that mm-hmm. we made a, a contribution to the gramercy park association mm-hmm. so that they could auction it off and raise money for the fund which right. worked out really well you know it each one as i say has its own nuances but i think in the end they really respect the idea that he gets up there for 24 hours we are very 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 conscious of not stepping on anybody's toes and mm-hmm. being very thoughtful about where we are and mindful of, of the people around us. You mean you act us. professionally? Yes, we do. Yes. We do. Years of years of, of, of incredible advertising work has, has taught us that well. And I think that that's been the beauty of it. You know, and it was a real homage to the city when we first started the project. And in the mayor's office really took it on and understood what we were doing. And we, we you know, had the great fortune of getting permission to be up in Central Park at on Bethesda Fountain. Mm-hmm. That one also had its own nuances and problems and permission granting, and that's a whole other genre. And then we did Brooklyn Bridge Park. It took me two years to clear that. Yeah. Uh, we went, I can't even tell you how many times we went down. We sent a scout down. We, we did it every which way from Sunday, and we ended up having a complete fluke in how we got the permission for it. And once we did it, and the guy who originally didn't want to give us permission because he thought we would be too intrusive within the park because Stephen had to have the lift underneath the bridge. I was 50 feet in the air for 18 hours. Uh, and, you know. Underneath I'm, the Manhattan underneath Bridge. Underneath the Manhattan Bridge. And I, the, the, the sound, sound was. Oh, it was almost, definitely. People was, always ask me, what was the most challenging? My brain was just like having a shockwave. I couldn't, I couldn't even. 
if you'd asked me my name when I got down you after 18 hours, you feel the sound up there. Oh, uh, yeah. it was like a reaper. Every time the B and the, the percussions D and so, oh, yes, train right. would go across sure. almost every two to three minutes. Yeah. And I had, you know, like headsets on, Bose things, and sound reducers, earplugs. Nothing mattered. It was just deafening. It's a, so that it's, was it's a real, assaulting. It actually it is. assaults. It's, it does. Exactly. It's like but a wave. But we needed to yeah. be also in, have a base camp within the park. All the gear, you know, everything that we needed around us. The lift was in the park. We 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 had offered to go into the trash area. We offered to go on the street, and but the prime area he really needed to be was was still in the park. It was. I wanted to make a picture, you know, Saturday in the park kind of feeling. You know, this kind of, you know, something that you know, harkens back to, again, some of the impressionists, you know, the celebratory view. The work is really, for me, has always been the New York, especially, and where it sort of emerged from was, I just love New York, you know? And I said, I just want to make photographs that make people feel the kind of love I feel when and I when, look at the when, city and I think about the city. When know? and how did it grow up as New York to, <laughs> well, to that African was, and real That was really interesting. I mean, it, it, it started with, um, I did one uh, of uh, California, like a, what really was a sister image to Coney Island. Mm. I wanted well, to the photograph Santa the Santa Monica Pier. And after that image, uh, we then, Chicago, there was an opportunity to go to Chicago. And I've, I always loved the Cubs. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I ended up, uh, I'm a baseball fan, so I did this. And then, of course, I, I'm, if you look at my work, you'll see um, the evolution over the last nine years. If you think about where I came from, from starting really my art as a documentary photographer, I did Ellis Island and Bethlehem Steel and some of these places, and then I went and started working into China. Uh, my work has always been um, captivated by history and um, and memory in a way and time, and so I've been now melding all of those things, and and now the newest day to nights are really sort of, I think fueled with um, social conscious issues that I'm very, very, you know, driven by, whether it's rising and seas these, or, the, you know, the birds and, and things like that. Are all of the, the original ideas come from you or are some of them suggested? Uh, and I think that, you know... Are the assignments... Not, yeah, I was going to say, who's well, footing the bill? Because this is expensive. Oh you know, God, it's, it's, it's really been a self-driven project. It has it been. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It really oh, yeah. has been. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the interesting part of it is that when we went, one of our galleries, Peter Federman Gallery, when he started working with us doing New York, he said to Stephen, he goes, you, you, you got to go global with this. And I remember sitting there with him and he said, I, I, I really feel like you need to go to London, to Paris, Jerusalem. And we look, and I remember we walked out of the gallery and I looked at Stephen and I said, oh my God. You know, and he said to me, you know, I think he's right. I, I think yeah, we got to go global with well, this. That, well, I, we, we had an opportunity. I wanted to go to Israel and I'd never been to Israel. And so I decided to do this picture of the um, of the Western Wall. And uh, it was uh, just a remarkable kind of an experience for me for my first time. And uh, I'll tell you, share a little story. It was really amazing. My my uh, my dad, when I grew Wait, up... Wait, before, yeah. before you get okay. there, though, I mean, what happened was Stephen said, I, I want to shoot the Western Wall. We do a tremendous amount of research in the studio before we send the scout out because it's too broad. And his vision is very particular about what he needs for the frame. So we start researching it, and one of our assistants says, my God, the beer cut Kohanim. Yes. And he looked at the pictures. And, and I he saw said, a picture and said, oh, that's, I have to shoot I that because there's that. an ocean of people there. I, a sea of humanity. I said, that's the photograph I need to make. Now I need to get to, on the highest and closest physical structure to the Western Wall. So I have this great scout, uh, so deeply we, religious man who- And so, wait, let, let me just interject and just say <laughs> that. It takes a while for us to find the right scout there. This is important. Right, okay. They're asking about production. Oh, Israel, right. everybody's a scout. Okay, right. so- So we, Betty found the scout. We, we found this guy who was fantastic, who had done work in the field before, and it took him three months of literally 
sending us photographs, knocking on every door in the call. Um, what's I it knew roughly what building I wanted because I do a lot of using Google Earth, and I, you know, so I I knew roughly where I needed to be uh, based on altitude and physical structures. And then he had to get access into those areas, and that's what took so much time. And we 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 got we got the permission, we got it cleared. We literally had to get all our gear in by about one o'clock in the morning, we moved in. At about three o'clock in the morning, my camera was already in set position. I was on this rooftop. Couldn't believe the view I had. It was kind of, all I could do was imagine like going up every morning and having coffee and looking at this view. From this vantage point in my photograph, you see all of religion in the Western world. Yes. So we're in the hotel. That was the word I was looking for. We were in the hotel and we had a private rooftop that, and the gentleman who owned the apartment wasn't using the apartment. He was actually, he rented it out every so often. So it was empty, which was great because we got mm. to be, we, we were able to get down into the apartment, you know, keep some of our gear there, the use the bathroom. And a, spot, yeah, yeah we secure, had a little bit of yeah. Yeah. production elements. Yeah. But we, but the security was insane, insane. Uh, and we needed to get there that early in the morning. We had a police escort. I was as, as extreme as anything you'd see during 9-11 or anything like that. Uh, so it was really tight. We got there setting up the camera, everything set, at about 3.30 in the morning, my my scout, who we've become friendly with, and he looks at me and he goes, Wilkes, he goes, are you Jewish? And I go, yeah, I am. He goes, do you have any idea what this day is about? And uh, I go, no. And when I was a kid, my dad used to say to me, you know, Stephen, you're what's considered a high priest. I go, does that mean I still got to go to Hebrew school? He goes, yes, <laughs> yes, you do. So I used to have this thing, I used to, he says, we're a you know, a Kohane. You're, You're Kohane. I'm we're Kohanes. So I'm like, wow, okay. So fast forward, I'm having this conversation. I said, Yeah, I'm Jewish. He says, You know what this day's about? I go, just a day that I guess especially everybody comes to pray at the uh, at the at the wall. He goes, No, this is the day that all the Kohanim come to bless everyone. And I my mouth is agape and he goes, Are you a Kohane? I go, Yeah. He says, Do you realize you're here today with all your brethren to bless everybody? That's physically in this place. That's intense. so that was really intense. And I by think, the way, it yeah. was horrible weather leading up to that day. We were yeah, we were so lucky. Lipping. It was completely we overcast. Were so so lucky. Have you had to call off uh, some shoots because of weather? We've never done it. No, no. We've been really fortunate. I mean, the shoots that haven't worked. When you asked earlier, I, I did. Uh, I did a picture of the Grand Canyon. The first one I did, I shot from. Uh, it was on actually the Indian land, and it, it's there's a very famous Japanese uh, architect who created this. Um, it looks like a gigantic magnet that's clear. It's a walkway that literally floats over mm-hmm. the canyon. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool? Have, that'll be my human narrative. People walking on this abstract, you know, this this clear sort of uh, uh, horseshoe in the middle of the Grand Canyon. And I did this photograph. I spent literally 26 hours photographing from this place. And when I looked at the image and I roughed it in, I realized that the actual architecture overpowered the Grand Canyon. And so I realized that's not the photograph I want to make. It's, it's I wanted to, I, I don't want to over, you know, the Grand Canyon is the thing that I'm trying to capture. And I wanted to somehow c- contextualize humanity in a way with it that that was much more harmonious than allowing like this does, architecture does every, overpower. Does every shot start at dawn? Oh yeah, yeah. and before pre-dawn. dawn, pre-dawn, pre-dawn actually, yeah. pre-dawn. And there's sometimes that I actually get to a location uh, in daylight uh, where I have to set up in daylight because it's too difficult to actually access at night. So, you know, like a example, when I was in the Falkland Islands, um, you know, I, I started 
I, I almost do reverse. I shoot Malvinas. Ma, yeah, the Mal. Sorry, <laughs> the Malvinas. I'm married to an Argentine. Yes, yes, Malvinas. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I usually I'm used to on Facebook. I you know on Instagram I have to hashtag both. Yeah. So I don't get you know hate mail get from. This. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> Malvinas, depending on your persuasion. Sure. And uh, I um, uh, so I had this experience where we the physicality of just getting to location was so you know difficult. We had to actually get out there in the early afternoon and then work a sort of a reverse schedule. Well, it really yeah. doesn't matter at the, no. end of the, at the end of the day <laughs> um, when you really start. No, so it's 24 hours cycle. from beginning to yeah, end. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think when we are waiting for moonrise, I mean, that well, has a great well, effect. Yeah. I mean, then well, it does moon, really matter. Sure. Because, okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, mean, that's why when people hear, you know, why, why are you shooting 36 hours? Usually it's because of moonlight I'm trying to get. You know, when you start, when I started moving the work into um, from the National Park series that I did, I started to realize that, you know, uh, how do you capture night? The only way is there is no light in a national park, right, other than moonlight. So, you know, sometimes you can be shooting and you get your normal 12 hours or whatever it is, 16 hours, but you know what, the but for the time the moon, you get up high enough for it to light El Capitan, which is what was happening in, in that first picture I did of Yosemite mm -hmm. in the national park. Uh, you know, I spent you know, God knows how many hours waiting for that event to happen where the angle of light would hit it just the right way. So as the work has evolved, um, so have the challenges in a way, you know. How, how many do you do a year or how often do you do It really this? depends. Uh, you know, I think when we first started, we were doing, you know, two or three, you know, balancing it between a lot of our commercial and editorial commitments. And we were moving along. And then Stephen... Uh, signed a contract with Tosh and, and we we had 35 at the time and we needed to add a substantial amount to finish off the project for the book and for two years really I would say we were I've done more in the last two years than you know that's it's, it's almost Herculean what Did, how often does it done and it must because of the fact that this is so labor and time intensive are there times when you're sitting up there in that bucket saying to myself you know what I think I, I think this is played. I think I've done it. Hey, I don't you know, think it's at that time. No, I don't. No, it's it's always it's, on the back end. It's, it's, it's the what, edit. It's the the edit. The like, edit is oh. is a torture. But you know, I was very very. My heart was warmed, um, reading a great book on Da Vinci and um, and 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 it, it describes procrastination as this beautiful thing that it actually is not procrastinating. It's just that you're. You know, for creatives, just you a, have to. Yeah. You're working through it, and I keep explaining that to my wife. You know that that <laughs> you know she keeps saying, "Why aren't you editing? Why aren't you editing? Why aren't you editing?" She's always screaming at me. I'm never editing fast enough, or you know, and I'm like, "No, I am editing. It's actually in my head, and I'm thinking about it and mm -hmm. the relationship of it, and and where I'm going to go with it, and you know, uh, I'm telling stories, right? And I'm also reliving my memory. So you know. That's what photographs do, right? I mean, they think they they bring our they keep our memories alive in a way, and so uh, when you experience the, the the things that I experience when I when I spend twenty four hours looking at a scene, just studying a place, it informs you in a way that's very different than almost anything I've ever experienced. And I think one of the great joys for me personally has been when people stand in front of my prints and they experience it the way I did, and you know. We found it fascinating the way people actually spend time looking at my pictures. They don't just glance at my work. Oh, you know, no. No, I, you there, there's a way in a well, way that I, there's something think, about the time that I put in that comes out. I, well, it's a, a perfect example of yeah. that of all of this is that we had the great fortune to be commissioned 
by the United States Embassy of, in Canada and the National Gallery in Canada to create a data night of the Canada 150, yeah. which was last summer. And it was on July 5th, I want to say, or July 2nd. I can't remember the exact date. And we knew we had to shoot that day. And we had months, almost a year of preparation getting into this. And at the last like month or two before, we found that the royals were coming, which changed where we could shoot from because, you know, they have to have so much security, et cetera, et cetera. And we were scouting with the team from the National Gallery who were helping us. And we had a fabulous team there. And anyway, we settle on this location and we get to Ottawa and it is pouring. And I mean pouring. And Canada 150 is going on whether it's pouring or not. And the picture reflects the morning of rain and umbrellas and incredible ponchos. And, and we're sitting out there and they had built a structure for him to shoot off on the roof. And luckily there was an empty office building below because he couldn't have shot from the roof no matter what because there was so much rain. And he shot through the entire day into the night. The, the, photograph, the uh, fireworks weren't off until... I think 10.30 that night or 11. 11, And we shoot it and it ended up, we knew we had the picture because we had this incredible break of light during the middle of the day, et cetera. It it looked like a Hudson River School painting, the sunset. It was just spectacular. But the the incredible thing was that after we made the picture and we presented it to the museum and to the people of Canada, um, the next day we were at the National Gallery and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife Sophie showed up, just completely coincidental. And we were very, we got to know the ambassadors uh, f- uh, from the U.S. of Canada, Bruce and Vicki Heyman, and Vicki's there and she says to Stephen, oh my God, you got to come here. And she says, I want to introduce you to Prime Minister Trudeau. I'm getting a tour, literally. Uh, one of the curators is giving me a tour. She goes, Stephen, I, someone would like to meet you. And and, and it's literally <laughs> it's Justin Trudeau and his wife. And he <laughs> brings Stephen. And he just came over to me and, and he, he, said, he looked at me and he said, I can't tell you how unbelievable that photograph is. And he said to me, the most touching thing was he said, every single memory of that day is in, my memory of that day is in your photograph. And that was incredible. And that that touches upon what you were just saying, that people... Then I said, oh my God, that's the ultimate compliment. Right, right? the ultimate compliment. That makes it interesting when it is an event and and a one-day thing where other people are sharing it. Sure. So they can... Exactly. And that, you know, that's been thematic, Mm. you know, when when he can capture a historical event. Have all the been seen? Or are there still some that... There are still a few. That that have not been seen. seen We had the incredible foresight, potentially, or good fortune to be allowed to do one of Red Square. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one is still being worked on. Yeah. And that was, you know, an incredible... <laughs> I don't know if I could do now, but... Uh, <laughs> I doubt we get permission right now. I don't right think we get permission right. now. Okay. We're going to take a short break, and we come back, we're going to be talking about the Serengeti. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. For Serengeti, I started working with a, a team out of Tanzania, my God, like in September, and we didn't shoot the picture till March. It took that long. Everything moves at a snail's pace there. The amount of production needed to get in there and to figure out how to get everything in there and what we needed and the permissions, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, very, very time consuming. And what happened was we were going together prior to the shoot um, to, to Africa and to Tanzania. We went together and we were supposed to meet the production team the day we got there and hand off some of the equipment and the hard drives and the, just to be prepared. Mm-hmm. 
And at the last minute, they called me. They're like, oh, sorry, we're not going to show up today. I'm like, what? I was could not believe it. He's like, yeah, no, we can't make it. We'll, we'll catch at the end. So the whole time we were there together, I had my heart in my mouth worrying. And we, we, we had a sense of where he wanted to go. And we were pre-scouting before he even met the team because the scouting photographs that they were sending us just weren't really what he wanted. And the last day that we were together there, our assistants were traveling in to meet him. I was coming back to the States. We get to this literally airstrip that is just a dirt road, and our plane lands, and they're supposed to be waiting for him there, and there's nobody there. Mm. And I'm like, oh my god, this is so She's not so how I run a production. Like <laughs> Where are we they? are like clockwork. I'm like, oh my god, and I can't even get to them because the cell phones just are so dismal. And he's like, don't worry, they'll show up. I'm like, I don't know. He's like, they'll show up. So I end up leaving him alone on this airstrip. Literally, I think there was a hut. With my eight cases of equipment. Yeah, all the equipment, <laughs> no assistance, no, no nobody. And sure enough, they do end up showing up. And then what happens after that is just a real miracle. He had, we had been to the Serengeti National Park. You can't go off-road there. And he said to our team over there, who had a lot of experience, which is why we hired them, and it wasn't cheap. It's expensive to work over there. Everything is black market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just one of everything. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to them after scouting, what, like three or four days? Well, there was basically, I, I, um, I discovered the location through happenstance. It's like I was, um, uh, it was one late afternoon and uh, I noticed this watering hole, but I wasn't really drawn into it, to be honest, because it was uh, just from the angle where you're actually in the park and you're driving, you don't see it in its entirety. You only see a fraction of it. But what I noticed was these zebras uh, at sunset were coming out and they looked like they'd been dipped in black chocolate. So they were, or oil, it was like they were glazed and they were just beautiful. I've never seen anything quite like it. And in fact, it was almost, a, there was a, a viscosity almost to the water. It was like, uh, almost like mercury. You know, it had this kind of sheen to it. And I just started photographing them and I was like, where are they coming from? What's going on? Like, where, where are they getting the sheen from? Because all I could think about was seeing them go in and then come out. And so I traced them. I followed them back into the actual watering hole that they were coming out of. And when I saw the watering hole, I was like, wait a second. I saw the relationship of where I was versus where the hole was. And, I, and then I saw the back end of it. And I want, realized if I could get to the opposite side from inside the park and shoot across that I'd have this amazing view at sunset and everything. And so um, we got permission to drive off road into the park. Which is unheard of. Unheard of. And I, I had a uh, scaffolding uh, built onto the actual truck. So it was like using speed rail. So it elevated me almost about 15 feet in the air. And then on top of that, I had a crocodile blind uh, that was attached to it. So I was essentially invisible to the animals when we started to shoot. But we, we pulled up. I was scouting at this moment. So I only stood on the top of my truck. And when I looked at the view, I, I knew immediately this is the shot. This is definitely the shot. So then we had to get back and uh, we spent almost four or five days negotiating with the head of the national park. Waiting to, for permission. Waiting for permission. Because they don't allow you to never, go in there for 24 hours. No. It's unheard of. The yeah, animals, because, yeah. you can't, how do you protect yourself? Not you only know. that, it's it's mm. really about the poaching. They yeah. you know, they don't want anybody driving in the park after sunset. So it's a very, very strict it's thing. Guarded and and I needed to actually be set up, you know, like I needed my truck in the situation all dialed in like at one o'clock in the morning so I could shoot the stars, so I could and they they agreed to it. We got we were able to do it at we they said you will only allow you to do this, you have to camp out 
in our tents. So they allowed us to use the actual national, the, the, you know, the, the rangers tents. So we literally spent the night uh, in the middle of the Serenara. But you we know, had a security was, guard with yeah. a rifle and we yeah. also had a Maasai with a spear. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's just say, if I had known, base, uh, your base is covered there. <laughs> if I had known what I know now, I don't know if I would have been, I, I don't think I would have slept at all, frankly, or, and I'm, God knows if I probably would have um, ever stepped down from my my rig, because we when we pulled up that night to set up uh, the camera, uh, the uh, as the lights came across this watering hole, there were all these eyes lighting up. You, we immediately think of crocodiles, but they weren't crocodiles; they were hippopotamuses. So there's a whole family of hippos there. So after the fact, I realized that it, when a hippo, if you get between it and the water and its water, it will you know likely go after you, and there's a 95% chance you're going to die if a hippo goes after you, which I didn't know they had that high of a kill rate. <laughs> you can't reason with them. No, no. So, and, and by the way, you know, they, people think they're these lumbering animals. It's, they're much closer to, you know, the dancing hippos that you used to see in the cartoons. That's how fast they can move. But we're talking yeah. about a photograph, and, and if you're listening to the show, if you just go online, uh, you could find it very, very easily. But it's essentially a small watering hole. It's what, maybe 50, 60 feet across? Yeah. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And it's in the photograph you have over the course of 24 hours, pretty much every animal species that came along to drink. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, one of the things it's I did Noah's was- It's Noah's Ark around it was, a puddle. It was essentially Noah's Ark. I kept waiting for him to, well, you know, you to drop the You have to talk about there. what happened when you were yeah. shut well, down. Well, well, what happened was um, I set up the camera. We were there. We started taking photographs. It was 26 hours. I think I took two hours to stop to eat lunch, that was it. Otherwise, I was photographing the entire time. And um, what I witnessed was, it was truly, really biblical in a way. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. And it was kind of a life-changing experience because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a dog lover, I, I love animals in general, but um, I've never witnessed anything quite like this. So these are, all these species are sharing this watering hole and I'm watching this over a 26 hour period and you don't even hear them grunt at each other. There is absolutely no, it's like this idea that they're competitive in any way does not exist when it comes to the going into the water and sharing the water. It's an equalizer. And it's an equalizer. They, the animals seem to truly understand that water is something everybody gets to share and that whatever other problems you have with each other, you could pick that up after you leave the watering hole. But when it comes to the watering hole, everybody's on the same plane. It was astounding to watch and it, um, it made me begin to understand that animal communication is something we don't really truly understand. And, and I started to really think about how my work might be able to evolve into capturing more of that idea of animal communication. And that's really how, you know, the bird series got, it was based on Serengeti. And then I did a photograph uh, in a place called Ropes and Bite where I captured you know, uh, orca whales and, and the way they inter intersect mm -hmm. with humanity in this a magnificent place called the Bight. When you're up there, are, are you, well, I have two questions about that time there. How often are you pushing the shutter? And also what, I mean, do you have a lot of great ideas when you're up there or about everything else that's going on? Or is it, are you so focused on what's going on? There no, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I really try to live in the moment, you know, so, you know, you, you think about uh, as a photographer, I started as a street photographer and uh, I would, you know, just, uh, I can kind of smell a picture before it happens. And I, I think what I do is, although I'm in a very sort of controlled, you know, set space and my frame is very defined already, I am, you know, just reacting to what my eyes see. So I'm literally just seeing things and reacting. I'm, I, I like to describe it as I'm a street 
photographer from, you know, 50 feet in the air. That's what I do. Not to say I don't have a, an idea of a picture, but I don't let my, uh, my pre-visualization of something um, define what it is that I'm going to capture. I'm, I'm open. I've learned over the years that, that you know, I, I want to, you know, somewhat be able to have this frame, but then I get lost within the frame. I want to get lost a little bit because that, that is what kind of drives my uneasiness a little bit. And so it makes me pay even more attention. And I tend to be very afraid of missing something. And like with the Serengeti shot, what Betty was mentioning was um, we, we, sh we shoot such large files uh, that every three hours or so I have to clear my computer off just to capture and, um, you know, to keep working uh, fluidly. And so uh, sometimes that involves like literally disconnecting. And it's, so it's a couple of minutes before I, I'm live again. And so there's this always this moment of where I'm completely terrified that within those few minutes something the shot's the gonna shot's happen, gonna happen yes. you know like that the the you know the line's gonna strike the, the something's gonna happen especially when you're shooting wildlife uh, and so uh, or in Manhattan my my assistant or in Manhattan true <laughs> and and my assistant um, looks at me and he says after four minutes he goes you're live you can start shooting again Stephen I'm like thank God I, I looked around so I'm in a you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a crocodile blind, right? And that's like, a, you know, this basically it's like a beige tent with a 20 by, you know, 36 window in it. And I peer, so I don't have really peripheral vision. I have to, in order to see what's coming on my edges, I actually have to lean my head out the window to look. And so I lean my head out and literally, if you look at the photograph, you'll see a family of elephants, elephants marching yeah. across. That is the moment I see them. And it's like, I'm going, oh my God, you know, literally I was shooting so fast. My assistant was cocking my shutter for me. I was just going, if you could motor drive a four or five, I was motor driving. It was just so incredible. <laughs> but to me, the most spectacular moment was this, when they just came across that center section and the baby, um, the gesture of that baby was just, it was out of the jungle book. It was magical, you know? And so my point being is you just never know when that stuff's going to happen. And I just felt like so blessed. I was so thankful that my assistant Chris got it finished and done because 30 seconds later, I don't get that picture. You know? Not to get too far off the topic, but what camera are you using, camera and lens system? So I work with a Linhoff, yeah, a okay. large format camera. And, and it's uh, a digital back on it? Digital back, a phase digital back, yeah. Okay, yeah, all right. Phase 100 megapixel, yeah. So And so time will go by where you, you won't be shooting. I mean, it really, it sounds like, while you're up there, you're like every other photographer, you're waiting for that moment. There's not like a, a set number of minutes exactly. or time. No, there's no, nothing. I, I, uh, like I said, my eye moves with mm -hmm. time and mm -hmm. certainly I'm creating naked plates based on time. Mm -hmm. And if there's transition, color and clouds, different. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting coverage based yeah. on my time transition. So that's always happening. And that's always in the back of my mind. But I live in the moment. I'm, like I said, I'm a street shooter. So I'm reacting to what I see with my eye. And that's really what it's about. It's, that's what people, you know, when you look at the work, it's way more, this is not a time lapse where some, you know, mechanical mechanism is shooting pictures every 15 to 30 seconds or every minute. Um, this is me seeing very specific moments throughout the day and the night. And that's why it is really a, um, an accurate representation it's hard of to my put memory finger of on what it. I saw that day. That, that comes through the photo though. You know, even it's hard to put your finger on it when yeah. you're looking at the photo, but this idea does come through, I think, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, if you look closely enough and you see the moments, you know, they're, 
there are a lot of really cool moments in it. Oh, That's yeah. what's so, kind of fun about the work is, you know, I, 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 the joy to me is in the details. And, and it, the joy for me is, is bringing you into the picture. You know, a lot of art, you, you know, you kind of, you need to stand back at four feet to take it in. My art doesn't work that way. You can stand back at four feet and take it in, but then I want you to come closer. I want you to come in. Come, you have come to, on you in. have no choice. Yeah, you have no choice. I want you to come inside, take a look. You know, there's something for you to discover. And like Betty said, I mean, that's, that's the, the great pleasure is when people who live with the work, you know, say to me, oh, you know, oh, Stephen, God, every day I wake up, I see something new. And that's what I love about art. I like art that, you know, you can rediscover every time you look at it. Can I ask this? And, and we've touched on it a bit. Some of the work is comes from assignments. Others, it's you guys decide you want to shoot it and mm -hmm. you figure it out. I've heard you mention a grant. Yes. Uh, and Tashin. So there's there's a whole lot of players involved in in funding this I, to some degree. And, yeah. And well, I mean, you yes sell no, prints right? also yeah. through the gallery. Yeah. The gallery is what really, to be honest, my, my gallery sales is what really is how we uh, we, we feed it all back into the project. Okay. Right. So my, it's the print sales that really are able to um, – been very fortunate in that the work has. Uh, I have a, a, a really great collector base that mm -hmm. um, it ex is always excited about my the new works that I'm doing, and and they um, that that enables me to go out and create more art. But, you know, you know and that's really the way it works. Going back to the grants, as when Stephen was talking about it earlier, you know, the initial grant and what I estimated for was for five domestic bird migration shots. Mm. We ended up. He ended up basically going around the world to do it. So right. the the grant budget that was initially forthcoming did not even come close Cover. to covering what we needed to. That was for coffee do. and snacks, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the great thing is one of the, the, the exciting things for me as a photographer. You know, uh, you think of uh, uh, the geographic is is really this bastion of photojournalism, and I think when. Um, you know, I remember early on I showed my work to Sarah Lean and she was very captivated with, with what I was doing. And the fact that the geographic sort of recognized this yep. and they were willing to embrace it is a really, you know, for me was really the ultimate compliment. They're, they're, they're they incredible see that, partners. Yeah, they've been incredible partners because they see that photography is evolving and they recognize that and they and they see the power of storytelling that this this concept brings to to the medium. And And, you know, the issues now that I'm beginning to explore, uh, whether it's um, with the, the, the bird migration series, you know, the idea that, you know, birds are, are we can learn so much from birds. And, uh, you know, the old canary in the coal mine idea. Um, seeing these species, studying them the way I did, you know, it's almost like a scientist, you know, when I spend a day like that, I see the mating rituals, I see all the nuances, the way they teach their young how to fly, everything is in my pictures, you know? So it becomes a real way for, um, you know, your average viewer or a young kid who never thought twice about birds to suddenly have an experience um, with a species in a way that's really enlightening. And and maybe they get excited about, about birding and realize, you know, the birds can teach us things. They can tell us what's coming before it actually happens. When were these the bird photos shot? And you, you, we, we this were last in, year. That was well, all in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. And how many locations over the course of a year for the bird photos? There were initially a total of five. Okay. And then we ended up with four mm -hmm. uh, because we ended up having to go so far away. And why was endure that? Endure so much expense. So, well, Stephen can conduct this. We well, started scouting. Yeah, we started scouting. Uh, we started to scout. Initially, we were going to do five locations, um, and the five was uh, uh, we were going to go to uh, um, Las Malvinas, the Falkland Islands, and shoot the um, black-browed albatross. And then from there, we were going to um, Nebraska and on the Platte River shooting the sandhill crane migration. 
And uh, and then after that, we were going to go to um, the Yucatan. But there was that was one. the flamingos, and then we sh- we were doing um, uh, Panama. We ended up. Um, I did a lot of research, and we thought, okay, Yucatan is going to be great, real Largatos. There's this incredible nesting area where the flamingos come in. It's a sanctuary. It's a sanctuary. And so we had it all lined up, spent about seven months. I had a scout there, a producer, the whole thing. We worked out everything with the National Park. And then two weeks, literally, before I was supposed to get on the plane and go and begin to start shooting, I get uh, an update, and my producer calls me. He goes, Stephen, you're not going to believe this, but I just got off the phone with the scientists, and the birds are not here. And I go... What do you mean they're not? He goes, well, they're not nesting where they normally nest. And so that, you know, that doesn't work for me. I, I got to know that the birds were going to be there. And so um, I called my editor, uh, Kathy Moran at the Geographic, who was just fantastic on this project. And we started brainstorming and realized that, okay, let's just, you know, if they're not there, they're not there. Let's figure out where we can catch them. And so we, we, um, we started looking at uh, Africa and an area specifically called Lake Begoria. And they have a huge population there. But the thing is, they don't nest there. So again, that created a new challenge for me. Could I actually be lucky enough to capture them as time changes an entire day without them, you know, having this giant, you know, move? Because when they have their babies with them, they tend to stay there, right? So um, we went for Begoria. I had a, I found a great a local uh, scout, and basically I heard the numbers were great. We got there, and something happened. Climate change affected this picture too. So we get there, and uh, the first night there's a massive thunderstorm, and I find out that over the last five weeks, this is the dead of dry season, they've been having massive rains. And we get out in the morning to scout for the first time, and I see all the hills have this almost sea green color, like spring. And I notice there's this, almost a freshwater river in the foreground of the lake that's just coming off the side uh, of where I was standing. And I started having this conversation and I see the birds are coming into it and they're bathing themselves. So it turns out lesser flamingos, they love feeding in this alkaline, you know, rich, nutrient-rich water. Um, But in terms of bathing, they love freshwater. And so I looked at the situation and they were saying to me, this has been going on every single night, Steve. We get a thunderstorm around 9.30 at night with lightning and everything. I go, okay, so if that follows, then this freshwater stream should be here over the next two, three days. And so what I decided to do was I built a 30-foot blind. And this is crazy, but we actually had it brought in from Dubai, if you can believe that. Because <laughs> they, they, they didn't happen to have that in, uh, in this area of, of Africa. So, and we literally had it wrapped with fabric. And I climbed into it, and I built it right on the edge of the fresh water, hoping that the birds would ignore me and want the fresh water enough to continue to bathe there. And I guessed right. They did. You've been charmed. Yeah, yeah that's what my but sister said. Every 20 minutes, pretty... you're going, boy, again, he's gotten charmed. I got lucky. And did you find out why <laughs> they, the birds never showed to Mexico? Was there a, or what happened? We never got a confirmation, yeah. but the, essentially there was, you know, there, was, there has to be a certain temperature of the water. The water has to be a certain height um, in terms of them to nest. So if there's too much water, they, they can't, like, you know, create their nests. It's almost like they, the nests get drowned. Um, hmm. So it affects the young. So I think that's what it probably was. It led to it was something to do with either temperature or water, or you know, sea level. Over the course of this uh, series, are there any kind of major technical advances or changes that have 
improved uh, the photography? Yeah, that, or, or, that was a big or, question or, I had. Well, yeah. like, how long is with the first shot on the Highline was taken? How long ago? Well, that was with a, uh, and that was with a. I think it was a, what a, a thirty-seven megapixel four, four, back, or forty, or 40, yeah. 40 megapixel back. So now I'm using a hundred megapixel back. So to, to answer your question, That's it's a great change, question. Yeah. It's, We're um, no longer measuring time in years, but by pixel count. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, the thing is, is what I, I feel like a writer who suddenly had a thesaurus handed to him, and I've learned all these new words. It, it is it, technology, and in particular, uh, you know, the size of the file size is, uh, you know, I started maybe it was, uh, I was shooting two and a quarter film. Now I'm shooting almost 11 by 14 film, you know, and that is an powerful way to be able suddenly what was insignificant in my early work is now significant. So from a, as a storyteller, I love the fact that I have that much more information to work with. And I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is when you see my prints in person, I'm trying to create a visceral experience for you. I want you almost to look at my work as a window, like you're standing there. It's as if I'm trying to change I'm really, really interested in the way the eye sees. And so part of the way I photograph now is to try to m almost replicate the way the human eye sees when you see a big, big print like that. So it, it, from, from a perception standpoint, your peripheral vision, the way your eye moves through a lot of my work, feels like you're there in a sense, right? And that's what I'm really interested in. So the, for me, it's very exciting. The larger, the more and more megapixels I have, the closer I get to realizing what I consider is our the human experience of seeing. So that aside, though, what about the post-production uh, part of it? Oh, well, that creates more problems on the yeah, post that's, side. That, that, that's that, the that has not changed. We, 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 the, the backs are doing great. Um, the, 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 the problem <laughs> is, is the uh, the optics have to size. grow and the file oh, yeah. size. And the, and the other thing is, is that the, the time it takes to yeah. to layer this type of uh, huge data together. So we're um, we have a my a funny line with my retoucher. Where it's always that whenever I make a change, I call her up and I go. Time to go out for coffee. That's the cue. Because <laughs> it's 20 minutes right. on the fastest computer to, to open, open the one file. of my files. Yeah, now, 20 minutes. Your oh, retoucher is in the studio with you when you're working, or are you guys in separate locations? We work, work, we work remotely. In, remotely, yeah. So, but okay. we, uh, I have this you know, wonderful program that I'm able to um, work simultaneously with her anywhere in the world. She yeah. used to come up to the studio yeah. a lot and, yeah. and, and work with us okay. and work with Steven. You know, but now one we, on work, one. we work, it's as if I'm sitting next to her. I can, she can share my screen, I can share her what, screen. What program is this? It's called using? Join Me. Yeah, it's Join Me. Join okay. Me, yeah. Okay. yeah. And can we talk post-production now? Can mm -hmm. you just kind of maybe walk us through if that's possible from the images are shot, they're collected, and... <laughs> well, the post work, um, it, it starts with me editing. Mm -hmm. uh, that can take almost a month, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. Well, it starts it's before pulling, that. I mean, first well, we get back to the studio, and this and the assistants have to download everything. Right. And, yeah, well, you that's, know, that's, yeah. that's obvious. Yeah, that's yeah, obvious, yeah, yeah, but yeah. still, it's time-consuming because sure. there's a huge yeah. amount of The data, of, I mean, the, the organization of the data is huge. Yeah. And, and then um, we have to um, – um, we edit now in, um, in Capture One. And I, you know, basically – because – my workflow is such that I like to actually, you know, parallel as much of my experience when I'm actually shooting, where if we start changing uh, and 
adding different software and so on and so forth. The other thing I do is I actually create a time lapse right. um, as a study that. guide. Uh, and so my time lapse, what that does for me is it's not used uh, for any imaging. Mm -hmm. What it's used is strictly for me to study time. It's a reference. It's a it's reference, reference guide. I see guide. how the light moved. I see oh. how things change. So while you're working, you have a separate camera doing a time yeah. lapse. Yep. Of everything. Oh, yep. that's fascinating. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so that enables me to really um, see uh, how light is moving through the scene. And that becomes uh, a great uh, tool for me in terms of visual reference of how I'm gonna decide sure. where day begins and night ends and how, how time is gonna move through my photograph. So, um, and then, you know, we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll spend, uh, the thing people have to understand is that, you know, when you see my work, there's all this micro detail. Well, I capture very specific moments, but because my scenes are so broad in terms of the information in each photograph, uh, that there may be five or 10 or 15 other great moments that happened that I wasn't even aware of. So I get to sort of, ha I have to rediscover my work when I edit. So it's not just the, the mark frame. You have to visually I have scan, to scan each, frame. each frame. Yeah, and so you're doing that at 100% mm -hmm. and just imagine the time to render and all that stuff. You can realize why it takes a month to edit. And then I, they all the moments uh, are based on time and they get, you know, I mark them, they get circled and then I sit down with my retoucher and we, um, I, I create the master plates. I choose the frames that I feel the best skies, the transition based on time. And then we, we build the master plate together. And once that plate is built, then it comes down to, okay, my best and most favorite moments based on time get seamlessly blended into the image. And that's how it works. The post side can, anywhere from three to four months. I have a, a team uh, of uh, assistants, current assistants and old assistants that I still work with. Um, so I have almost uh, 10 pair of eyes go through the file through its complete and gestation. One file can so have 28 yeah. iterations. Yeah, 28 okay. to 30 iterations easily, mm -hmm. easily, yeah. before we even print. And then we make these and huge absent prints friends. and then we rip them apart. You know what I mean? Like it's so so it's it's constantly being um, and then finalized after we and printed you know, the studio refined and, apart, and refined. We'll he'll sign off on the final file. We'll put it, give it to our master printer. Master printer. He'll print it, and then we go through another. You know that can take like, two two weeks, two uh, to three weeks, three, two to three weeks, Sometimes just longer to, because color is so critical in my work. So if you're five. If you're 0.5 yellow or red in my images, it changes the whole narrative. So color is really, really important. Creating a harmony between day and night, that's what the other thing people don't really realize is how challenging that is. And, you know, uh, I'm really bringing together these two very discordant worlds in a way where they visually you just – are drawn to the image, right? They meld together yes. without being jarring. Yes, that's the, exactly. No, and is that the hardest thing? That's, that's that the, the hardest thing. Part? Absolutely, yeah. that's yeah. the hardest thing. Now, you part. simplified this process a little bit in some of your city shots because, like, I know the Times Square, you used the side of the streets that were in shadow as your night. That's right. And Times Square, daylight was daylight. That, there are two images that I've actually checkerboarded time. So, um, and that, that's the, those are the only two I've done it with. And it's because in New York, you know, when you think of Times Square, it's a canyon. Night is in the shadow of that picture and right. day is in the sunlight. Exactly. Right? So it's checkerboarded. So there's no there's no like normal arc to it. And that's because, you know, Times Square sunlight comes in in spots. And when I it was looking at it, yeah, yeah, it made sense. And I thought, wow, that could be really cool. I'll checkerboard time. And save two months. And save, exactly. <laughs> well, and what people don't know about that picture was, uh, that picture was shot in like in the middle of August or July, I think. And I'm on, literally I was shooting from on top of a, one of those great signs in, in Times yeah, Square. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, you know, kind of harnessed in on, a, uh, on one of those signs. And um, there was a bomb scare. Another one. Now, 
Everybody looks at that picture and you go, how the hell does he create a naked plate in that picture? Well, guess what? At about 5.30 at night, the, the police come out and they grab, if you look at Times Square, they have these uh, railings uh, that are always on the side. And yeah. it looks like it's for, you know, for various events. The police grabbed the railings and literally started moving people pushing them to the side, and they cleared the entire streets. So imagine in three minutes, all of Times Square was empty. Betty, how'd you, get no- that, how'd you get the cops to do that? <laughs> I'm telling you, everybody thinks, wait a second, Stephen, did you phone, phone that in? I said, <laughs> I promise you I didn't phone it in. But I'm watching this with my assistant, and we look at each other, and I go, this might become a news event. This is crazy. And, and then I'm thinking, wait a second, I got to keep shooting because I was getting – it was like this unbelievable thing because I was able to get all these photographs with no people in my scene. So it really made for the the post side to be a, a lot, lot easier than it would have been otherwise. So, but yeah, it was pretty crazy. You Stuff got the naked cowboy in there. Oh uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when, when you make the edit, you said it's about 50 images? Yeah, on average 50 okay, images is what we, we generally use. Okay. And like I said, it's about three to four months of yeah. post work uh, to finish it. And are you shooting other things while you're doing this? You know, I'm, I'm, you... yeah, I'm, I'm a relentless photographer. Like yeah. I, I actually have other cameras that I'm, I'll, I'll be shooting with my main camera and I'm seeing stuff. But every so often I'll be like, oh, that's really cool. And I, you know, I, yeah. so I have a, you know, my, I'm right there with my Nikon or right. just grabbing stuff, you know. What phone do you use? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I kind of <laughs> want to ask a, maybe Go a cheesy interview question. And You know, you do nature. You're a fine art photographer. You've talked about street photography. In your heart of hearts, uh, what kind of photographer are you? Or do you like to put that label on? That's a good question. I just love looking, you know. I love seeing things. And um, so I've never allowed – it's not about um, necessarily what I see. It's just the act of seeing that I love so much. I think it's the excitement of discovery for me. That's what photography is to me. I mean, I started when I took pictures through a microscope when I was 12. And so there was a draw to this idea that I was seeing something new for the first time. And I think it's just uh, evolved into a a, a constant sense of curiosity. Um, And so I I don't, I guess, you know, it really, you know, everybody says, you know, well, you shoot this, you shoot that. And um, in the end, I I really just think it's, uh, it's, I like looking at, at things that excite me. And I think for me, the, the ultimate is when I get to show you something and hopefully you get as excited as I was when I saw it, you know? So it's, it, it's, that, it's that idea of sharing. I think that's the beauty of photography. I think that's kind of the exciting thing even about like Instagram today is, is the idea that you could just share the way you see something, you know? Yeah, and, and, sure. And people have, a, you know, can, you can, everybody can see things, you know, but most people just don't look. And, and that's, um, that's really... Uh, uh, a great gift and something I learned. I, I have a you know my mentor is Jay Mazel. I've been working on a documentary on Jay um, over the last couple of years. I've been doing it, and um, you know that's such an important part of of some of the lessons that he imparted with me in terms of the idea of just um, looking. You know, we all got to look. Take the time to look. Now, no doubt you're going to be taking many more wonderful photographs in the future. Do you think you'd be able to come up with a project as interesting and as, I hate to use the word interesting, but as complex technically as this, because this is more than just going out and taking oh, yeah. great pictures. Yeah. This is an, 
awesome undertaking and, and a process. Yeah, it's. I don't. To be honest with you, this is probably as complicated as anything I could have ever created. I like to say to people, it's essentially you know my uh, primordial soup of photography. You know, it's everything I love about the medium of photography. Like you ask me, what do you like to? Well, I, if you think about day to night, I've I've kind of poured everything in. in. It's yeah. all in there. Yeah. Everything's in there. Yeah. You know point. what 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 isn't in there that I yeah. that that I could possibly want or. Or need to uh, have. Is there a fashion model in what's in there? In there? I don't know. <laughs> Listen, there's even, you know, who knows? I mean, there's, there's, there's always something going on. I also uh, tend to get a lot of brides, also, you know. So, uh, that's always a funny element in my pictures. But yeah, I mean, to, to answer your question, I'm by nature, I'm sort of, you know, I have this kind of right brain, left brain type thing. So I'm always interested in new technology and things that are evolving and, um, so I don't know. I don't know where the next opportunity will come. Now I'm actually exploring the idea of you know using time and connecting to uh, rising seas. That's my my next big project that I'm working on, and uh, and potentially how do we um, how do we create an experience for people to understand uh, what the future is going to actually look like. So uh, that's going to be a very exciting new body of work that I'm just beginning on. Well, you know, I, Steve and I, I said up front, I've long been a fan of your work. I, 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 you take the craft seriously and you push it to places where no one else has ever been. And uh, it's, it's just great following your work. It's wonderful having you guys here. Thank Betty, you. pleasure having you here as thank well. Thank you so Betty, much. We can't my better half. Yeah, thank yeah you so much. You, you're, you're in trouble without her. No, two <laughs> no about question it. about it. Okay. I'd Down be out on the street. <laughs> yeah. If folks want to see more of your work, where should they go to take a look? Well, certainly if you're, uh, you know, based on the East Coast in New York, please go to Bryce Wolkowitz Gallery. He always has Stephen's work up. And the museum show, uh, National Geographic in Washington, D.C., is up through the end of April. Mm -hmm. Yeah, show, please yeah. check that out because we've got uh, the bird uh, images are 12 feet, 12 feet long. That's how oh, long wow, the wow. prints That's are. Awesome. So, and, and it's it, really an experiential. The, the current uh, issue of National Geographic has this the yes, migratory the March birds. issue. Um, Yes. And this is at the National Geographic Museum, Museum. in Washington, in in Washington D.C. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's up till the 29th of April, right. as Betty said. And we have a book coming up. Yes. Which is going to be published by Tashin. Yes. And out. When's that coming out? Which we're scheduled for the fall. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I think I'm getting a copy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Another great show. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Betty. Thank you for having us. And thank, thank you, you to us. our listeners. If you're not a subscriber, go to wherever you have to go to. Where are we going now these days? We're going to iTunes. We're going to Apple Podcasts. All the places where you could sign up. You know all the places. I repeat them all the time. So that said, on behalf of John, Jason, and myself... Thank you so much for joining us today. 